Good afternoon, and thanks for tuning in to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM New York, and also streaming live as always at WBAI.org. This is your public affairs show where we explore the issues that are shaping our community and our country. I'm Jeff Simmons, and each week my amazing co-host Celeste Katz-Marston and I check out the headlines and the headliners, and we bring you the conversations with the people who are in front of the cameras and behind the scenes, the folks who are making a difference in government and policy and in our daily lives. And today, we have a fantastic show for you. We're going to be joined in just a few moments by former Congressman Mondaire Jones to discuss his campaign to recapture his former congressional seat. And then in our second half hour, New York State Senator Jabari Brisport is going to join us to talk about the recently introduced New York Health Act. Will it finally get the traction it needs to become law during the next legislative session? That is a question I know our listeners care a lot about. But first, before we move forward, let me bring on my amazing co-host, who actually, I'm looking at her now on FaceTime, got dressed up for the show today, the hostess with the mostest, Celeste Katz-Marston. Well, thank you, Jeff. You know, I, I feel I really look my best on radio. <laughs> this, this is the medium that I think gives the best possible picture of me, but always a pleasure to be with you here uh, today and every Thursday, Jeff. You know, and I know we're going to get to very serious topics throughout the show and talk nationally in just a few moments, but I do want to bring our listeners a little bit of, a little bit of news that passed, especially New Yorkers who uh, over during the pandemic kind of got used to the outdoor uh, dining opportunities. Uh, the city council here in New York City just passed this, uh, where it's going to make outdoor dining more permanent. Now, of course, there are going to be some restrictions. For instance, structures are going to have to be removed in the winter. But I know, Celeste, this is something you really cared about because you wanted to have more of these outdoor romantic dinners with me as we moved ahead. I do, and I did, and I will. So yeah, this is, I think this is great news. Look, I mean, there's no question about it, Jeff, that the pandemic, uh, had a, a huge impact on so many businesses in the city and everywhere, really. And, you know, anything where people can stay in business, give people an enjoyable time across a range of, of, uh, you know, cuisines and price ranges and that kind of thing, keep people working in the restaurant industry, in the service industry, you know, keep putting money in people's Pockets. It sounds good. I'm sure there will be some squabbling over parking and bike lanes and traffic and that kind of thing. But, you know, that's just New York. But I think on the whole, uh, if it's something that people have been really attracted to and really like, which seems to be the case, then that sounds like good news to me. Yeah. And uh, speaking of, well, I'll say news, uh, we should really move into what's been happening nationally today regarding a, uh, what is it, a former Queens resident who found himself in court today, Celeste. Right, right. I believe it was Jamaica Estates, was it? Correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, but a, a former resident of Jamaica Estates today. <laughs> uh, of course, we are talking here about the former president, John, uh, Donald Trump, uh, appearing in person for uh, arraignment on this uh, really detailed, really detailed uh, grand jury indictment, of course, um, completely centered on uh, what they say is or what he's accused of his um uh, attempts to subvert a legal and legitimate election for president uh, in the United States, the uh, the most recent election, of course. And uh, of course, he maintains he hasn't done nothing wrong here. But I don't know, Jeff. I mean, I read the thing and there is a lot of detail in there. And what I think is important for me, at least, and, you know, Jeff, tell me if you feel otherwise. One of the things that I think this really pulls out for us is that there's been a lot of discussion 
And I think a lot of uh, maybe Trump proponents have said, well, you know, this is America. This is a free country. He can say what he wants to say. And this is very different from the issue of his First Amendment rights, as uh, any uh, American citizen has and should be able to avail themselves. I think rather this is a situation where having known the truth, the truth being that he lost the election, the election mm-hmm. was legitimate and uh, that Joe Biden was to be the next president of the United States. He did any number of things with a pretty good number of co-conspirators to try to tip the scales in his favor, to actually derail the process of certification from putting the arm on election officials and public officials uh, to actually trying to uh, create this false slate of electors and get it in front of Congress. Uh, Jeff, really, really uh, intense stuff there. Oh, yeah. And if anyone has not followed this news today, I mean, just know as far as the update, basically, he headed into court in Washington. It was relatively routine. He pleaded not guilty after the judge read him his rights. The judge outlined the conditions of his release, set a next court date, the whole thing. Celeste, after all this buildup was about 30 minutes, you know, uh, and from what I had read, apparently he is going, he has asked reporters to follow him. He's going to give some type of a statement when he gets to the airport. Uh, so, uh, you know, we will be following this up, but, you know, a few key key questions we need to consider, and then we're going to get to our guest. Can't think about it. Can an impartial jury be assembled? If Trump is convicted, can he still run for president? And if elected, can Trump even pardon himself on this last question? A number of experts have basically agreed that there's really no law in this question. It's not clear cut. So let's get to our first guest today, someone we've wanted to have back on the show for a while. I'm talking about Congressman Mondaire Jones. Now, he made history when he was sworn in in January 2021 as the nation's first openly gay black member of Congress. He was a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He was first elected in 2020, along with several members of the so-called squad, who are among the most liberal members of the House. Just a few weeks ago. He announced that he's running again to recapture the seat he previously represented before redistricting had thwarted his re-election plans that, uh, last year. And in making his announcement in a campaign video, uh, Congressman, former Congressman Jones had said that I've never been Washington's choice. It's because I stand up to corruption. I battle with Republicans trying to overthrow our democracy and ban abortion. Even as I push my party to fight harder for working people, I'm running to finish the work I began. So with that, let us bring on Congressman Mondo Jones. Welcome back to WBAI. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. So we want to start off with the topic that Celeste and I were just talking about, the president uh, in court today. You know, you have uh, obviously strong opinions on this. Uh, talk about your reaction. What went through your mind? I mean, what is going through your mind? And, you know, what do you think? How do you think this is going to play out, given, you know, the, the former president's uh, normal temperament? Well, Jeff, as someone who has spent more time than probably anyone in Congress last term thinking about democracy and how to preserve and strengthen our democracy. This week's latest indictment for Donald Trump uh, was, was really personal for me as someone who narrowly survived January 6th uh, and was personal for me as someone who is intellectually uh, committed to this and, and who frankly stands uh, to to you know, be harmed the most as a member of multiple communities uh, whose freedoms are being taken away by far-right extremists in this country. I mean, it has been how many days since the Supreme Court decided 303 Creative? 
uh, which made me a second-class citizen by saying that uh, that businesses can refuse to to uh, provide me services because of who I love. Uh, but this is a guy in particular who has struck at the heart of democracy. He has tried to overturn a presidential election, and opponents uh, like mine on the Republican side, Mike Lawler in the 17th Congressional District, uh, it, it's like crickets. I mean, they. It, in fact, what he said to Fox News yesterday, uh, news in air quotes, is that uh, this is why people are concerned that the DOJ may be politicized. I mean, that is a defense of Donald Trump without any evidence at all. So, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us here today. So how do you think this is going to play out? I mean, you have some experience around the the legal system, you know, just curious as to what you see happening here, because this is, of course, again, happening right in the middle of election season. This is not happening in a vacuum. It remains to be seen how many of these trials will actually take place prior to the presidential election set for November of, of 2024. Like We know that's not changing. Uh, but we know that, that there are multiple indictments that that may occur in the future that are imminent. We, we, I'm thinking of the Fulton County, Georgia, district attorney, uh, who has not yet charged the former president uh, for trying to overturn Georgia's results in the 2020 presidential election. I mean, these... These are an extraordinary set of circumstances, and I think of the of the charges against him thus far, uh, the, the the behavior that he was indicted for this week, uh, the second time by the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, is among the most severe. Uh, this is someone who knew that there was not any outcome determinative fraud in the 2020 election, but pressed forward with the big lie anyway got a bunch of people uh, to, to be convinced uh, that there was such fraud, and, and he incited them to breach the Capitol, only the second time in our nation's history that that ever happened, by the way, uh, and, and has not apologized or expressed any remorse for uh, his behavior and, in fact, has continued to push the big lie. And almost to a person, so have mem- the members of his party in the House of Representatives and in the United States Senate. Uh, this is now the ca- this is now the case of only one major political party being a pro democracy party in America. So this has implications for more than just Donald Trump. I'm glad you mentioned that. And if you're just joining us, this is Driving Forces on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons, our guest right now, former Congressman Mondaire Jones, seeking to uh, make a return to the House of Representatives. And Congressman, before we move on to your platform and your campaign, just want to stay on this for one minute because uh, I don't want to trump everybody's head off in this program, but I do think this raises a bigger question about American politics. You know, there are some people that will support Donald Trump uh, through an indictment, through even a potential conviction. There are some people who still believe uh, that the um, the election of Joe Biden as president was not legitimate. Some of those people are in the House of Representatives. So I want to ask you, feeling the way you do and knowing that other people feel the way they do in the current climate, how do you think that if you return to Congress, you will be able to work with other legislators who do feel that way to get things done for the American people and for your district? I think any Republican member of Congress suggesting that there was outcome determinative fraud in the 2020 presidential election knows that they are lying. So I start from the premise that they don't actually believe what they're saying. 
However, I am someone who has been pragmatic in Congress. Um, I, I have not been part of uh, the, the extremes uh, within the, uh, the Democratic caucus. I am someone who has brought people together. I did that with the infrastructure bill when I brought uh, progressives uh, and conservative Democrats together to get things passed. When I was a member, a very active member of the subcommittee on antitrust within the House Judiciary Committee, uh, I partnered with, with some names that may surprise you on the Republican side to take on big tech and to rein in some of the abuses, some of the monopolistic and other kinds of economic abuses that we see from uh, tech companies like Apple and Google and Facebook. Uh, and so I've got a track record of working across the aisle, but I will never compromise on the issue of democracy and freedoms like abortion, marriage equality, and so many other things. And I certainly have stood up to pharmaceutical companies. I did that when I helped pass the Inflation Reduction Act, which capped the cost of prescription drugs for people on Medicare by the year 2025, for example. No senior on Medicare is going to be paying more than $2,000 annually for the cost of prescription drugs. My opponent, Mike Lawler, as a candidate, opposed the Inflation Reduction Act. He would have seniors like my grandmother and like and seniors throughout New York's 17th District, Rockland, Westchester, Putnam, and Duchess, pay more for their prescription drugs, not less. And, Congressman, you know, when you last joined us here on WBAI, when uh, Carlos Menchaca and I were hosting the annual Pride special, you had not yet announced uh, that you're going to try to reclaim your congressional seat. You've since made that announcement, and you've now touched on some of the issues uh, that you care about. But I'm really curious about your timing, why now, and what are some of the issues you really think are going to fuel your campaign and, you know, maybe then lead you to success? Well, I am proud to have served in the most productive Congress in modern American history. Uh, you will recall that at the height of COVID, we rescued the American economy from collapse when we passed the American Rescue Plan Act. We kept our small businesses open through the Paycheck Protection Program. We cut child poverty in half, uh, if, if not for but a year. Uh, now we have to, and I'm running, to make the expanded child tax credit permanent. Passed the largest infrastructure bill in generations, and I already mentioned the work that we did on prescription drugs, but we also passed the largest climate bill. Uh, in our nation's history, and we see inflation going down. We see millions and millions of jobs, many of them union jobs, being created, and that will continue to take place over the next decade. But we have to continue the work of lowering costs for working people. And so I want to continue to work to cut costs for the cost of, um, of health care and expand health care. I want to make sure that child care becomes affordable in this country. Uh, and, of course, I want to restore basic freedoms like the right of women to make their own health care decisions, specifically the right to have an abortion. I want to restore freedoms that are being taken away uh, every day by Republicans in state legislatures and in Congress and, of course, on the Supreme Court when it comes to the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, but Mr. Lawler on the other side uh, has a very different perspective. He opposes the right to an abortion. In fact, he also opposes a ban on assault weapons, even as our kids are getting gunned down in schools around the country. These are very dangerous people, and you would be hard-pressed to find an actual moderate Republican in the House of Representatives, certainly not Mr. Lawler in the 17th Congressional District, and that is why he must be defeated, and so must Donald Trump. 
You know, and, and you mentioned that about gun control, and that's on my mind today because of today being the four-year anniversary of the mass murder of uh, 23 people at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas. You know, uh, if reelected, if you rejoin Congress, what will you push for to make this a safer country when it comes to, you know, particularly when it comes to the availability of guns in our country? We have to pass universal background checks. The American people understand this. Almost 90% of Americans support universal background checks. We have to pass an assault weapons ban, which we know to be effective because you can look at the efficacy of it from 1994 to 2004 when we had the last assault weapons ban uh, in place. Um, and so we can do this. In fact, we, we passed this legislation through the House last term. We needed a Senate that was willing to get rid of the filibuster to do the same. And I'm optimistic about what we can do in the Senate in the 2024 election cycle. Uh, but this is now a Congress led by Kevin McCarthy and extreme MAGA Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's even more powerful than Kevin McCarthy, that won't even have a floor vote on these basic questions about whether we will secure public safety. I relish having discussions about crime and having this debate with my Republican uh, colleagues on the other side because I want to talk about the the historic levels of gun violence in this country and what we can actually do about it when we're not capitulating to the NRA and to the gun lobby in the way that Mike Lawler has been doing. I want to ask you, and if you're just joining us again, we are speaking with former Congressman Mondaire Jones, who is uh, seeking a return to the House of Representatives. Congressman, now, I don't know if everybody who's listening to the program is familiar with the uh, uh, adventures in redistricting you have experienced it in your career. I don't know if you want to maybe give us a very brief, uh, brief recap of how that worked out. But I did want to ask, ask you, in that context, how will this campaign be different than the last? Will you be focusing on anything different or uh, different specifics uh, based on the fact that uh, uh, all the puzzle pieces have moved a little bit here? <laughs> well, the main difference between this cycle and last cycle is that I finally get to run in the district that I always intended to run in. This is the district I was elected to in 2020 when we stood up to powerful special interests uh, that were working in service of the people in Washington. Uh, and, and they my constituents here elected a champion for working people and uh, redistricting last year was a nightmare. Uh, where do I begin? Uh, I think I probably, well, my constituents got the worst of it. That's who got the worst of it. They are now represented by someone who was far outside the mainstream and certainly outside of the median voter in this district. Uh, and I'm working really hard to change that. I know that there is litigation pending right now about redistricting. Um, I'm, certainly committed to and assume that I'll be running within the lines as they are currently drawn. Um, and if the district changes uh, to, in, in any material way, I'll, I'll continue to run because we've got to make sure that we have people in government who believe in using government as a force for good rather than dismantling government um, for uh, corporations and other very wealthy people in our society. Uh, and I hope that people in Washington uh, or in Michigan, uh, in the case of uh, my primary, or, or, or anywhere else, we'll, we'll just let the, the people of the Hudson Valley here uh, decide and come to their own conclusions about who they want to be their Democratic nominee. You know, as you're speaking, I'm also thinking about, you know, inspiring new voters, younger voters, how to engage youth 
you know, get them excited about the presidential election, but also the congressional elections. I'm really curious how you plan to engage young voters and inspire them to participate actively in the political process. In 2020, I was just honored to have hundreds and hundreds of, of young people, Gen Z and millennials, um, really just throw down for me and um, not only convince their parents to vote for me, uh, but also phone bank and, and, and texted uh, and what's called relational organizing, where you, you, you make a list of people in your network and you tell them why you're voting for somebody. Um, we did this at the height of COVID when people couldn't knock on doors. Uh, and as I was saying at a summit uh, with, uh, with Gen Z last week and, and talking about their contributions to, to my race the first time in this district, we've now got to organize this district in a way that it has never been organized before. And nothing short of democracy itself and, and the fate of the planet when we think about climate change and the way that that has ravaged the lower Hudson Valley with historic levels of flooding in recent weeks. That is what is at stake in this moment. And I think that, you know, given my track record, uh, given the generation that I belong to and, um, and given just the, the way that young people understand what is going on in this country in a way, frankly, that some other people don't, um, that, that we're going to get this done. And we are starting early in terms of organizing. And I hope that people will sign up to volunteer at mondairforcongress.com and even consider making a contribution. You know, I, I want to uh, bring up a topic. This just came up in a discussion that I was having with someone today about I live in a very progressive neighborhood in Jackson Heights in Queens. Uh, up until redistricting, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, was my representative. Uh, now it's Grace Meng. Who knows when may free districting change the lines again? But uh, recently, AOC endorsed President Biden's reelection campaign. Now I know you know she got some praise on this. At the same time, she got some criticism on this. Where do you stand on this? Is do you agree with her on this? Will you be endorsing Joe Biden's reelection? Of course I will. Look, I mean, we we, we don't have time to. Uh, question the effectiveness of someone who has been demonstrably the most successful president in modern history. Again, this is someone who has rescued, with the support of Democrats like myself in Congress, who has rescued the American economy from collapse. He has passed the largest infrastructure bill in generations. We have made serious and meaningful health care reforms to lower the cost of prescription drugs and to invest in, in, in climate action uh, in the way that people elected us to. Uh, he needs to be allowed to continue the work that we all started, uh, whether it was folks like me in Congress or, or his administration. And the idea um, that we would have some kind of divisive primary um, for the purpose of proving a, a point that, that people understand, look, I, I have myself criticized this White House at times. I'm, I'm on the record as having done that on a number of occasions. This president is not perfect. This president has made decisions that have uh, frustrated me, to say the least. Uh, but his heart is in the right place, and he has a tremendous record of accomplishment. And the alternative of Donald Trump is too grim to, to, to bear, given the fact that he's even more unhinged than the last time he ran for president. 
And speaking of Grimm, and our guest right now is former Congressman Mondaire Jones seeking to return to Congress in the next election. Speaking of Grimm, Congressman, I think we've all seen, and I'm sure our listeners have all seen, these images of people uh, migrants camped out uh, in the city, uh, sleeping on sidewalks, the city being overwhelmed. And I think that to some degree, a lot of people are looking at this in New York as a quote unquote city problem. But certainly we have seen that some of this is rippling out into other communities where some of the overflow uh, New York City is sending uh, some of these people out to other uh, communities. And some of those communities are fighting against uh, having to provide services, shelter, and so on to these people. I'm just wondering, what do you think of what is going on right now with the migrant crisis as it affects New York and as it affects communities outside the city? Well, this migrant crisis is something that Republicans in Washington, uh, like Mike Lawler, want to continue to exist. They don't want to solve this crisis because if they don't get to make people afraid of undocumented folks looking for a better life, then all they've got is to have to be held accountable for their unpopular economic policies uh, of doing the bidding of corporations and, and cutting taxes for billionaires. And what we need to have in this country is comprehensive immigration reform that creates a pathway to citizenship for people who have been contributing members of our economy and of our society uh, that creates an orderly immigration system, and yes, that provides funding for border security, which we should talk more about, I think, as Democrats. Um, but this idea that, you know, the mayor of New York City should just be, like, putting people on buses and, and sending them to the Hudson Valley or elsewhere uh, it is not a solution to... You know, Republican governors like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, in many instances, I would suggest kidnapping these people, misleading them and, and, and sending them elsewhere because they don't want to deal with them. And we can't just keep passing the buck. And Congressman, before we let you go, is there anything that uh, you plan to talk to people about during your campaign that you may not have really gotten to explain to them or anything that's changed about you since the last time you ran for office, a new part of your story that you'll be presenting to voters that they may not be aware of? Well, you know, I, I think that people saw last cycle in redistricting that I am not Washington's choice. And I have never been Washington's choice. It is because I stand up to corruption. I stand up to Republicans trying to overthrow our democracy and ban the freedom to have an abortion, even as I push members of my own party, the Democratic Party, to fight harder for working people. Um, I have resolved to do that, have a record of doing that, and am even more committed to doing that, given my unfortunate experience in redistricting last year uh, and we will make this right and my constituents will once again have the representation they deserve congressman mondaire jones if people want to find out more about you and your work and uh, your platform where can we send them please go to mondaireforcongress.com sign up to volunteer consider making a contribution uh, there will be millions of dollars spent by um powerful special interests and Republican billionaires trying to distort my record and um, lie uh, about what is at stake in this election. 
but I know that with a grassroots movement, like what got me elected the first time around, we will overcome those hurdles. Congressman Mondaire Jones, I want to thank you so much for appearing here on Driving Forces with Celeste Katz-Marston and myself. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Take care. And the congressman mentioned contributions. So before we take a short break, I thought it would be right to let you know that later on in the show, we are going to tell you, our listeners, about a special offer that Celeste and I have lined up that if you donate to WBAI, you will be able to get some tickets. And all I will say right now is they involve a special tribute to, I always mess this up, Jean-Michel Basquiat. I I always, you know, I, I'm not French. No, I have to <laughs> learn how to say it better. But in this next half hour, stay with us because we're going to bring you a conversation with New York State Senator Jabari Brisport. And we're going to tell you about how you can get some tickets when you go online to WBI's website or call in then to be able to get tickets to a special tribute to him that's going to take place in Brooklyn. So we're going to take a short break now and leave you with a little of John Lennon's starting over. Our life together is so precious together. We have grown, we have grown, although our love is still special. Let's take a chance and fly away somewhere. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. And of course, that was John Lennon with Starting Over. And that's our theme today, Starting Over. We're going to see if Mondaire Jones, our previous guest, gets a chance to start over in Congress. And that brings us right to our next guest. We had hoped to have him on a few weeks ago, but unfortunately, we had some insurmountable tech issues 
Uh, very sad, but in keeping with the theme of starting over, let's start over with him. Our guest, of course, New York State Senator Jabari Brisport. He is a lifelong Brooklyn resident. He was born in Bed-Stuy and raised in Prospect Heights. He's the son of an undocumented immigrant and a former math teacher at a middle school in Crown Heights. He's one of the Senate's more progressive members, and he represents New York's 25th state Senate district, which includes Fort Greene, Borham Hill, Red Hook, Bedstuy, Sunset Park, Gowanus, and Park Slope. He first became an activist more than a decade ago when he started organizing efforts in support of a bill to legalize same-sex marriage in New York. Even though the bill was defeated in 2009, he continued working on the issue until it was ultimately legalized two years later. And he continued his activism as part of the early Black Lives Matter movement and started organizing rallies and protests, as well as training protesters on what to do if stopped or harassed by the police. So given his experience in the classroom and working with youth, no surprise that he chairs the Senate's Committee on Children and Families. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Let's get right to it. State Senator Jabari Brisport, welcome back to WBAI. Thanks so much for having me, Celeste. It's great to be back. Really appreciate it. So let's start with some uh, big picture stuff, some some uh, questions about your successes and your setbacks. What do you think were your main accomplishments of this past session? And what were some things that didn't really get resolved that you had hoped to uh, to check off your list? Uh, working class people had some incredible successes this year in New York, including a nation leading Renew Deal legislation in the form of the Build Public Renewables Act to get publicly owned energy to help us meet our climate goals. And also in New York City specifically, winning a pilot program of five free bus lines that working class New Yorkers will see expand. Um, to all buses becoming free in the coming years after we show how viable it is. Unfortunately, there were setbacks in the case of new taxes on the wealthy, which did not come to fruition uh, in order to fund social social services. And on housing, there are still over a million unregulated units, uh, people who may get evicted at any point or see their rent spike because we failed to pass tenant protections like good cause eviction. I'm very glad you mentioned housing because that was my next question is, you know, what, why do you think that happened? Why do you think that did not go far? Did the governor try to put, I mean, obviously the governor dropped her housing plan because she was not getting much uh, traction on that. But, you know, is the governor the main resistance on that? You know, what needs to happen in this next session to be able to advance these measures that you're supporting? We are willing to do a housing plan that includes tenant protections. There are are still over over a million unregulated units where people can see their rent spike for no reason or get evicted for no reason. And the governor has time and time again chosen to have nothing rather than just protect the tenants who voted for her. It is an absolutely ridiculous position. So next year, the governor needs to come to the table, admit that any housing plan will include protections for tenants, and then we can pass something that works for all New Yorkers. I want to ask you about the Clean Slate program. Can you give us an update on that? This is uh, clearing the record of people who were previously convicted after a certain period of time. This passed the state legislature. But any timetable, are you confident the governor is going to sign? Where are we on that? Well, this is just an incredible bill that brought to be- together a coalition of people who typically don't even sit at the same table together whether that is those um, in, in law enforcement, in business, uh, you know, 
anti-incarceration advocates, all coming to an agreement on this bill. And even the governor's team themselves are at the table negotiating in its passage. So we are confident that she will sign this bill. So there's a few topics I definitely want to make sure we get to. Uh, one is in just a few moments, the New York Health Act. But before we do that, I want to go to a key issue that you've been a leader on in the state, something that we do want to spend a few moments talking about, which is reparations, a measure that passed the Senate and Assembly that would create a commission to consider reparations to address the negative effects of slavery. Talk a little about what this would do you know, and your vision for the commission. Thanks, Jeff. This commission was in such a long time in the making decades of work by people advocating for it and making sure that people really learn that slavery was not just a Southern thing. You know, upwards of 40% of cotton profits were going through New York. There were major financial institutions like J.P. Morgan and Citibank who profited off of slavery. Wall Street itself was built by slaves. And so this commission is really studying, you know, the huge role that New York had in slavery and in the racist practices afterwards, like redlining and examining, um, you know, the best plan to put forward to address these harms. You know, many of the recent research, um, the data is showing that it will be impossible to mend the racial wealth gap without some form of reparation. So this plan is a long time coming. And we are waiting on the governor to sign it. We're speaking to New York State Senator Jabari Brisport. This is Driving Forces on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Staying on this topic for a moment, Senator, you know, I think that what we hear a lot of times is that people may uh, find reparations to be a good idea, a just idea in, uh, you know, in the abstract, but in, uh, in reality, what are your thoughts on how exactly reparations would, uh, would be paid out? Who would qualify? How far out? What would you have to prove or not prove in order to qualify for some form of reparations? Because at some point there is probably going to be a limited amount of money or a finite amount of money. Uh, and how do we decide how that is, how that is, uh, parceled out? Well, I'll just start by reminding listeners that reparations have already been paid to multiple groups in um, the United States, including white slave owners in D.C. who were paid reparations after their slaves were freed. So that the money went to the slave owners as restitution and, and nothing for the slaves themselves. So there's a long history of people and individuals and groups getting reparations. Regarding the format of it, this really is a community-led commission, or that was the intent of it, because, you know, government, well, government was the ones who inflicted the harm. Government were the ones who instituted slavery, and you can't rely on government to then figure out the best proposal forward to undo it. So putting community groups in charge, um, the experts on these community groups to shape it, to determine who and how much and what forms, even beyond financial reparations, uh, that's the best way forward. You know, I'm sure in this next session, moving over to the topic I mentioned a few moments ago, that healthcare is going to be uh, something that dominates the discussion. We know here at WBAI that our listeners care about these health, about healthcare issues in New York. That's one of the reasons why we were really happy to have one of your former legislative colleagues, Dick Gottfried, on the show, because he had first introduced the New York Health Act about 30 years ago. This was just reintroduced a few weeks ago to create a statewide universal healthcare system. Talk 
a little about what this would do and if it and if it passes in its current form, how will it affect New Yorkers? This bill is a wildly popular health care bill that I campaigned on while running for office that would guarantee health care to every single New Yorker, regardless of employment status, income, or even immigration status. It is guaranteed health care. It, it is codifying in law that health care is a human right for every single New Yorker. And what this bill would change for every single one of us it would mean that you would no longer stay in a job that you hate just for the health care or in a relationship that is dangerous or abusive for you just for the health care. You would be guaranteed the right to protect your health. And, uh, of course, Senator, there are always going to be critics of any of these type of universal or uh, broad-based programs. Uh, typically, the complaint is, well, how do we pay for it? So just, you know, again, for the record here, uh, how do you respond to critics who say that these sorts of programs are simply too expensive for the, the public purse to bear? The main critics of this legislation are the insurance companies that profit off of the status quo that like that the payment is going to them. And this bill is not for them. It is for working class New Yorkers who are struggling to figure out how to survive without going into medical debt when healthcare is a human right. You know, the current system is untenable. We have too many people that are, you know, on, are waiting to, to get healthcare or can't access it, are uninsured or underinsured. And we can't afford the system as it is because what we are affording now is enriching the pockets of wealthy pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies. I'm curious as to how this may or may not fit in with your work on the uh, Committee on Children and Families. You're the chair of that committee. Uh, is this something that you've been talking about uh, in there? Because I, I can imagine that there's an intersection between uh, child health and development and the availability of quality health care or, for that matter, any health care uh, when it comes to kids. Well, sure. I mean, if your parents are in deeply in medical debt, how will, that infect, how will that affect what you're able to afford for the child? You know, these are things that can make a family more stable and more secure, is making sure that every single person in the family has access to health care free at the point of service. And uh, I know that Jeff, in doing his uh, his wonderful, as always, research, had, had looked at a report uh, that was out this spring that said that New York was actually a below average state for the well-being of children. And uh, you said at the time, uh, your quote, children are paying the price for New York's decades of consistently prioritizing tax breaks for millionaires and billionaires over the well-being of families. So uh, easy question, how do we improve the lives of children in the state of New York? Well, yes, if you, um, and listeners, if you look at that study, you'll see it's broken down into several buckets. And the real big bucket that drags down New York into below average is on economic well-being. Um, we're talking about actual the poverty of so many working class New Yorkers who are just struggling to figure out how to pay their rent and put food on the table, you know, and, and find what they have for their child beyond that. And because we consistently choose to let billionaires increase their wealth year over year over year, while the rest of us struggle to survive, that is the crisis of capitalism that we see ourselves in. So by reorienting society into one that benefits everybody and not just a handful of billionaires who want to own all of New York, that's how we can make things better for children and working class families across the state.
If you just tuned in, you're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM New York and also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your co-host, Jeff Simmons, joined by Celeste Katz-Marston, and we're talking with New York State Senator Jabari Brisport. You know, I want to just go to, the, I mean, we've had a lot of news breaking, but one of the thing that's, things that's been breaking my heart when I've watched this footage has been just watching the the line of people that have been camping out on the street outside of, I think it's the Roosevelt Hotel in Manhattan, the migrants who who need or need shelter and need assistance. And I'm really curious for your thoughts on how the city and even the state have handled this, this surge of migrants who've come to the area. And, you know, has the city's response in your view been, you know, sufficient? Has the city failed in this? Has the state failed in this? Or is this just an issue that we're dealing with it for the first time? So we could not have expected this. I think the biggest thing right now that people need to acknowledge is that so many of these people who are here are coming here to work. They're ready to work, to um, make their own livelihood. And at the same time, we have uh, staffing shortages in so many industries. And they are really being held up by bureaucracy at the federal level. And so many elected officials at this local, state, and federal level have, you know, begged uh, President Biden to speed up uh, work authorizations and been met with silence or flat-out refusals. And that is a huge, a huge problem when there are just so many people um, here who are ready and willing and able to work at the same time of having so many staffing shortages in so many critical industries. So are you are you saying that some of the people who are currently forced to sleep on sidewalks or sleep in alleyways because they cannot get access to services, what kind of jobs would you see them filling and how immediately? You know, the, these are, uh, you know, questions for, for you know, the, the, the Adams administration who is you know, spending more time, like, you know, with the social workers working with them, getting to know these asylum seekers about what their skill sets are. But what we do know is that there are shortages within the child care sector, which within nursing, uh, lifeguards, within so many sectors of things that we need to make our society actually function and run. And it is, it is nonsensical to consistently deny people who are willing to work um, entry in, into those jobs. You know, we've only got about a minute or two left. Uh, I want to go to the national news that Celeste and I talked about at the opening of the show. We talked with former Congressman Mondaire Jones about it's the reaction to the uh, former president uh, pleading not guilty today in, in a Washington court. Curious what went through your mind as this took place today and what you feel about the president's actions. Uh, you know, I'm... I'm <laughs> I am uh, um, not not surprised, but okay. <laughs> I, I, I do think that you know some of this you know really distracts from you know what a lot of working class people are are asking for on the ground every single day. Is they they really just want to make sure they can stay in their home and they can afford um, to live um, in, in in their in their community. And whenever we can, you know, refocus to, to things like that, uh, we, we are doing a good service to, to working class New Yorkers. And as we get ready to close, I want to make sure that you let our listeners know if they want to learn more about you, Senator, and your work and get in touch with your office, where can they go? Where should they check out? Check it out. 
Uh, you can uh, find me on the uh, New York Senate website, uh, www.nysenate.gov. Um, you can also follow – my name is Jabari Brisport. You can also follow me on social media, Instagram or Twitter, um, at, at Jabari Brisport. New York State Senator Jabari Brisport, thank you so much for joining us again, actually being able to have this conversation with us here on WBAI. We do appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Driving Forces. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. As always, Jeff finally got to have that conversation, really felt bad the other week when we just had this insurmountable uh, tech issue, but really glad we were able to follow up. You and we should, were able and we should follow up. Full credit, and we should, full credit Jeff. We, and we should say that Reggie was not working that day. So that, it was is not true. Reggie. that is true. So, yeah, just sometimes, you know, the uh, adventures in live radio, folks, uh, sometimes we can uh, pull it out and sometimes we have to go to a plan B or a plan C. But we do appreciate your listenership each and every week and each and every day because we know that some of you are really, really dedicated WBAI listeners. And that means a lot to us. You are people who care about New York and you care about free speech media, independent media, not letting corporate voices be the only only voices on the airwaves in a city as big and diverse as New York. So if it does mean something to you to have a radio station that talks about how to make this city a better place for everybody, regardless of gender, gender identity, race, ethnicity, uh, political views, any of that stuff, please take a moment today, go to WBAI.org and lend your support. Remember, we are a non-commercial station. We need your help. The station does not exist without you. We will go off the air forever. No joke. This is a serious emergency situation. New Yorkers will lose a bastion of independent media without the support of everybody who listens. And that means you, not the next guy, you. Most of us, including Jeff and me, are volunteers at this station. We do not get paid for this. We work hard anyway to bring you the best programming on important and sometimes difficult topics like today's discussions uh, about so the migrant crisis, about our political system, about the state of our democracy, about health care, all these things, redistricting for that matter. We do all this for New York, but we can't do it without New York. So it only takes a minute, only takes a minute. Support free speech, independent radio. You cannot get this kind of radio anywhere else Try it and see. This is a very unique station. Big business doesn't power the station, so you do. Please become a BAI buddy. That's somebody who gives an ongoing contribution. Goes right onto your card if you want. You can choose any amount, $15 a month. That would be great. You can give a call, 212-209-2950, or you can just go to WBAI.org and click the donate button, Jeff. Thanks, Celeste. So as I mentioned earlier in the show, I've got a special gift for you today. And as many of you might know from my full-time job, I work, one of the nonprofits I work with is the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. If you're not familiar with the cemetery, you may not know that in recent years, it really ramped up its roster of cultural and arts programming with concerts, if you can believe it, in the catacombs there, a resident artist programs for children and families. Well, this September 7th, they have a very special event coming up that celebrates the life and legacy of groundbreaking artist Jean-Michel Basquiat, whose enduring vision continues to have a profound impact on artists to this day, decades after his untimely death in 1988 at the age of 27. 
On Thursday, September 7th, Greenwood's going to present something called From Canvas to Stage, a tribute to Basquiat. It's produced by Wordsmith and Danny Simmons, the founder of the Deaf Jam Poetry Performance Series. Simmons, no relation, has a longstanding relationship with arts and cultural programs at Greenwood starting more than 20 years ago when he read excerpts from his first novel at one of the cemetery's earliest public programs. This one-night-only event is going to have a feature is going to feature a lineup of acclaimed musicians and poets performing against a backdrop of new work by contemporary artists inspired by Basquiat. It is a creative tribute to an icon in the cemetery where he is laid to rest in the borough he called home. So what we've done, we have got, or rather Greenwood has graciously provided us with 10 pairs of tickets to give to you, our listeners. And all you need to do is donate $100 for each pair. You're donating to help keep WBAI in the air, and you're going to get to see a one-night-only amazing event. It's a month away, but frankly, I already understand that their ticket sales are very brisk right now. So they're going to hold these seats, 10 pairs of tickets for WBAI listeners who donate. So as Celeste mentioned, I'm going to give it to you now too, the phone number, 212-209-2950. If you want to get more details, then just go to the website because we put it on their website under our premium section at WBAI.org. Only a $100 donation to support WBAI and get these tickets to see this amazing event at Greenwood Cemetery on September 7th. So please donate to support WBAI and definitely you want to head to this event at Greenwood Cemetery, Celeste. That sounds amazing. And again, props to Jeff. I hope everybody who's listening knows that Jeff works so hard, so hard to come up with great premiums, great gifts to thank you for supporting this station. And speaking of thanking people, we want to thank our guests today, former Congressman Mondaire Jones, New York State Senator Jabari Brisport. And we'd also like to thank, of course, our engineer, Reggie Johnson. Jeff, you back on Sunday? Yes. In fact, I will be back here on Sunday morning. Uh, it's I mentioned a little while ago about today being the anniversary of the uh, massacre in El Paso. Well, that is one of the segments that Carlos Menchaca and I are going to be talking about on City Watch at 8 a.m. on Sunday, because this is the four-year anniversary of that. He uh, has spoken with Veronica Carbajal, a legal aid lawyer, environmental activist in El Paso, about this. And then we're going to be joined by an enrichment teacher, our director, and a student impacted by gun violence in Brooklyn. They're going to both be on that show together because they participated in a walkout that took place in June. It's part of their, apparently their curriculum in talking about gun violence. This is going to be a really important show. I'm very glad we're going to focus on what took place in El Paso and then also largely about gun violence. When you think about it, it's just It's going to be an unbelievable show, Celeste. Celeste and I will be back here next Thursday with another roster of amazing guests. We're going to hold up and telling you who they are yet because we we just don't want to tip our hat yet. But uh, we will. you want to tune in at this time. And if you missed any part of this show or you want to share it or subscribe, well, we upload, or rather Celeste uploads every edition to Apple, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. So this has been Driving Forces with Celeste Katz-Marston and Jeff Simmons. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stay tuned to WBAI throughout the night for some more great programming and see you on the radio.